Well, good morning, everyone. Good to see you this morning on this fine summer morning. And uh, so thrilled to, to be able to teach this morning. If you are a guest this morning just joining us, so great to have you. A warm welcome to those of you who are joining online as well. My name is Brad, and I get to uh, be one of the teaching pastors here and get to lead us through a time of studying the Word today. So I would like to invite you to turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 1. We've got a lot of ground to cover today, and our fine ushers are coming down the aisle. If you'd like a physical copy of Scripture to be able to join along, just throw your hand up, and they will get that to you. And we are in the midst of a summer series that we've entitled Mixed Tape because we've had several different teachers coming with several different subject matters, and basically we're just teaching on that thing that is just like burning in our souls right now. And uh, this particular teaching I have been ruminating on for months, and uh, I'm so, so thrilled to be able to talk about a character today, a character that's in our story who does something absolutely remarkable, and it's something that we can all do. And I believe if we can understand what this character does and how we can do that in our own lives, it will significantly help us, particularly during times when things don't go the way that we would hope or desire. So uh, 1 Samuel 1 is where we're going to be beginning. If you just got a copy of scripture, it's page 267. And uh, what we're going to do is we're just going to dive right on in verse 1 of chapter 1, and then uh, we'll start building a little bit of context and where we're at in the narrative and where the story takes place, all of that good details. The, we'll get that in the first few verses. So notice with me 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1. Here we go. There was a certain man from Ramathaim, a Zophite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. He had two wives, <laughs> which spells trouble. Uh, anytime you've got multiple wives in a story in the Bible, uh, you've got all of these dramas and issues that go along with it. I mean, little things like jealousy, backstabbing, deception, anger, competition. Who gets them tonight? You know, all the things that come along when you have multiple wives. So all of this is going on, and, and what we have, though, is that in Genesis chapter 2, God says, listen, it's, it's one man and one woman, not one man and as many wives as he can get. And yet, this is what we get at the beginning of the story. Elkanah has two wives. Now, Elkanah has quite the introduction. And this is because Elkanah is a very significant person. He's actually referenced in 1 Chronicles 6. And he's from the, the tribe of Levi, which means he's a priest. And he comes from a religious family. And this family that he's part of is religious. And the question we have is, what is a religious man doing with multiple wives? Well, there is a lot of reasons why this was, uh, this was apparent in the ancient world. And uh, it doesn't make it right, but there are reasons, there are rationales for why people would do this. Um, you know, in some cases it was uh, when you had a large family, there was like power and prestige behind it. So some people did it for power and prestige. Some people did it for political reasons. King David had multiple wives for political reasons and his family was a train wreck as a result of that. But David did this for political reasons. Um, 
sometimes you wanted to have kind of more of a balance of males and females. Sometimes people thought, well, if one wife was only producing girls, then it was her fault. So marry another woman and maybe you'll get some boys. Uh, sometimes it was to have as many kids as you had because you had a lot of property, you had a lot of flocks, and so it was a lot cheaper than hiring people because family is cheap labor. Um, but probably the main reason why people did this in the ancient world and probably the reason why Elkanah did it was because this first wife was barren. And in an honor and shame world where everything you do brought honor or shame to your name, not being able to have kids was a sign of shame. And some people wouldn't be able to stomach it. And, and in addition to, to, to that, in the ancient world, the two most significant things were land and family. If you were exiled from your land, that was horrific. But what was even more horrific than that, the worst thing in the ancient world, was not being able to pass along your family inheritance. And so if you had a wife who was barren, well, how do you pass along your family inheritance? They would often take a second wife. This is what seems to be happening here. Notice how this continues in verse 2. He had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Panina. Panina had children, but Hannah had none. Originally, Hannah is listed first, which is an indication to us that she was likely his first wife and that his intention was just to have one wife, but she was barren, and so he married a woman by the name of Panina, and Panina had children. Now, the moment that we have two wives, there's already a sense of tension between the wives. But in addition to that, among those wives, if one has children and one does not, that tension just got elevated all that more. And particularly for Hannah, who's going to be the character whose eyes we're going to see the story through today, we recognize that for a woman in the ancient world, you couldn't find a more despairing, discouraging, hopeless situation than being barren. In fact, because you're in an honor and shame culture, it was understood that Hannah was at fault for not being able to have kids. That in some way in the ancient world, they believed that the divine had cursed you. You were under a curse in some way. There was something wrong with you. And with that came an enormous amount of shame. Guilt says I have done something wrong and I feel bad for it. Shame says I am something wrong. There is something fundamentally broken within me. A woman in the ancient world who was barren would often be ostracized, given lower status. It would as if, as if be, she's walking on pins and needles among the family in the community. She felt a sense of shame and disgrace. The community would levy that against her. This was a horrific situation to be in. In fact, Rachel, who's earlier on in the story in Genesis, is barren, and she says to her husband, give me children or I will die. And she's not joking. Death was a welcomed reality in the midst of being barren in the ancient world. And so there is tension here. There are two wives. That's tension. Among the two wives, one has children and one does not. That increases the tension. And there's even tension in Hannah's name. Many of you know that if you've been with us for any length of time, names are significant. Hannah's name in Hebrew is Hannah, and Hannah is from the word in Hebrew that means grace or gracious. So here we have a woman whose name means grace. She's experiencing the greatest amount of shame in the ancient world. With shame comes disgrace. Here we have a story about grace who is experiencing disgrace. 
when something she deeply desires to happen isn't happening, or what's more, what she doesn't desire to happen has happened to her. And it's like for Hannah, this represents her soul. And it's like something has been introduced, this idea of barrenness has been introduced inside of her. And it's this thing that has happened to her that she doesn't like, that she's not fond of. And it just feels like somebody just took this situation and said, here's your soul, let's disturb it as much as possible. We know what it's like, don't we? We know what it's like when something happens to us. Something happens, whether it's a mistake that we make or something that that just is done to us. Life happens and we find ourselves deeply, deeply disturbed. We know what it's like to have our soul unsettled. This is Hannah's world right now. This is what she feels like. This is what her soul is like. And the question becomes is how does grace respond to disgrace? What does she do in the midst of a situation where something has happened that is unfavorable to her? Well, the story continues and uh, it only gets amped up. Notice how it continues. Verse 3. Year after year, this man, talking about Elkanah, went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Okay, let's pause real quick, because now we've got our location. Now we have our context for where the story is going to go. They're at a place called Shiloh. It's about 20 miles north of Jerusalem today, uh, as it was in the ancient world. The sites have remained in the same place, strange enough. And uh, they're at a place called Shiloh. Now, if we kind of just zero in on this just a little bit, Ramathame is where they're coming from. Now, Ramathame, there's two different locations of where Ramathame is or what they're talking about here in this story. Both are within 15 miles of Shiloh. It takes about a day to get to Shiloh from either of these locations. And uh, here's a picture, an aerial view of Shiloh today. So you can see where it says Tel Shiloh, or it's in Hebrew, Shiloh. Um, underneath there, that's the, where the ancient city is. That's where the, the ruins are. Um, but just wanted you to see this from an elevated perspective because this area right here is this really flat area. And this is where they believe that at this time, the tabernacle stood. Because when Joshua came into the land under what we know as the conquest, the tabernacle, which is where God's presence was located, this is before the temple, was originally at Shiloh. Here is a model of the tabernacle in southern Israel today, but the tabernacle structure was at Shiloh. This is where you went to meet with God. And so this is where our story is taking place. It's taking place at the tabernacle in Shiloh. And uh, this is probably during a festival time, perhaps, because they're going up there. We're going to talk a little bit about meat in a few moments. This is all connected to probably some kind of the festivals. But then it says this, verse 4. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Penina and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her and the Lord had closed her womb. Ooh, 
Don't like that. Verse six, because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb. Okay, I definitely don't like that. And we'll come back to that because that, that's, that, that's like totally uncool right there. But we'll come back to that. Then it says this, uh, because the Lord had closed her womb, verse six, her rival, this is Penina, kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Her husband Elkanah would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than 10 sons? The typical dude trying to make things right with a bunch of words. (laughs) Now we're told that her rival, Penina, is just nasty towards her. It's like in the midst of all of this stuff that's already going on in Hannah's soul, the disturbance that she feels, Hannah's like, hey, how would you like a little bit more in there? Like, how about if I just antagonize you just a little bit? How about if I just let you know how you are just a second-class wife in this family? Why don't I remind you that I'm the one who can have kids? I mean, this is just like nasty Talk about kicking someone while they're down. And in the, in the midst of this, Elkanah comes along and uh, he gives her a little extra meat. <laughs> now, what's going on here? Well, anytime your portion was increased, it was elevating your status. It's a kind gesture by Elkanah. Probably ticks Penina off, doesn't help the situation. But Elkanah is trying to encourage his wife, Hannah. Uh, again, it's a very kind gesture. Uh, maybe for, you know, if you, if you wanted to, you know, elevate a guy's status, giving him extra food, that's probably a good thing. But for a woman, I'm not sure that works so well. But then on top of that, he's saying, hey, don't I mean more to you than 10 sons? And the answer is no, you don't. You don't. Stop trying to fix it. Elkanah, you can't fix it with your words. Sit with her, listen to her. That's what she needs. She doesn't need a Band-Aid. So in the midst of all of this, like Hannah's soul is like going through the ringer. And then we find out who's behind it. It says, because the Lord closed her womb. And then just in case you didn't read that correctly or hear that correctly, the very next line says, because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb. Now, I don't like this one bit. What is going on in the midst of this story? It's not like we don't have enough tension already. We just infused it with a comment like that. Uh, So here's what I want to do. I need to take a few moments to unpack this. This is not the major part of the teaching. This is not where we're going in the teaching. But if I don't take about five minutes and just unpack this, this is going to mess with you, for many of you, uh, with many of you for like a long time. So here's, here's the deal. Whenever you encounter significant tension in the text, particularly around God, the most significant question you can ever ask is this one right here. What's the larger story? And I want to help you to understand for a few moments the larger story. Because whenever you come to a story in the Bible around something as emotionally amped up and exhausting as barrenness, uh, people want to go, so what do you do? 
And uh, I know that for my wife and I, we went through a second trimester miscarriage. Our first time around, there was a time where we didn't know whether or not we were going to have kids. We are journeying right now with some friends who are infertile. We've been journeying with some friends who have been infertile for a while, and they're in the midst of a pregnancy. I mean, we've been through this. You've either been through this or you know somebody who's been through this. This taps into everybody's painful story. And here's the news flash. Uh, if you do not know the story of 1 Samuel 1, Hannah is going to have a child. She's going to name him Samuel. She's going to get a child. And all of a sudden, when people read a story like this and they're going through infer infertility or they know somebody's going through infertility, the question becomes, what did Hannah say? What did she do to get God to give her a child? And I want to just submit to you up front that this is not a story about how to get what we want. There are seven instances of infertility in the biblical text. In all seven instances, God will respond as a way to talk about a larger story that's unfolding. So what's the larger story here? Well, first of all, this story chronologically takes place. We open up to 1 Samuel chapter 1. If you were to go back one page, you will get the last chapter of the book of Ruth. But if you go to the beginning of Ruth, you will read that Ruth happens during the time of the judges. So from a chronological perspective, 1 Samuel 1, this story with, with Hannah, comes on the heels of the last chapter in the book of Judges. So in the larger story here, and let's show this once again, this is something, by the way, if you are new to Central, um, last fall, uh, we did a series called Kingdom and Empires, and we did a teaching 73 minutes long where we covered the entire Bible from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, every major character, every major movement, every major story within there to help us understand the grand narrative. If you were not here during that time, you can go on our website. Kingdom and Empires is a series. The Restoration of All Things is the teaching. You can watch it, and you can download this graphic as well. But in the midst of where we are at in our story, this is where we are at. We are coming on the heels of the period of the judges, some of the, uh, the, the, the ugliest, darkest, most depraved chapters in the Bible and in Israel's story. And in the book of Judges, you have these 12 leaders among the people. It ends with a guy by the name of Samson, who is an absolute train wreck. He was a Nazarite. He was called to put on display the best relationship of what it looks like to be in relationship with God, to demonstrate good to the world. And yet what Samson does is he takes the people of Israel and he starts to set an example to drive the story into the ground. How do we know that? With Samson, we get a phrase that says he did what was right in his own eyes. In fact, it happens several times in the midst of his narrative. Samson's story ends in Judges 16, and then Judges 17 to 21. Those five chapters right there are some of the ugliest, darkest, most depraved chapters in the entire Bible, and they are bookended with this statement. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Samson set a precedent that the country began to follow. And then all of a sudden we recognize that Israel is in one of their darkest places they are in their entire history. And it's because a guy by the name of Samson who was a Nazarite spun the story into the ground. So Israel is being completely disobedient. Now, if you're sitting there going, okay, so Israel's being disobedient. What does that have anything to do with Hannah being barren? Uh, actually, everything. Because in Deuteronomy chapter 28, Moses, who's been leading the people, 
tells them that they're about ready to go into the promised land and that if they behave a certain way, if they live in tune to what God is asking them to do, they will experience blessing. Things will go well for them in the land. But if they don't, some other things are going to happen. Notice what this says in Deuteronomy 28, verses 15 and 18. However, if you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all of his commands and decrees I'm giving you today, all of these curses will come on you and overtake you. Several of them are listed, and then it says this. The fruit of your womb will be cursed, and the crops of your land, and the calves of your herds, and the lambs of your flocks. One of the signs that something was going wrong in Israel was when barrenness became apparent. And what we find is that Hannah is barren, coming on the heels of the darkest period in Israel's story. And I would submit to you that Hannah's womb is a picture of the current state of Israel at that time period. And that Hannah is going to get a child. Why? Because God is going to demonstrate that he responds and he seeks to bring good in the midst of brokenness and chaos and pain, which is what the entire country is experiencing at this moment. And that when Hannah has a child, Hannah will have a child because she, in who she is, represents who Israel is supposed to be. You see, she's going to have a child, and his name is going to be called Samuel. And guess what? Outside of John the Baptist, he's the only other Nazarite that we know for certain in the biblical story. And he is going to be the linchpin that starts to spin the direction in the right way. So you have a Nazarite by the name of Samson who spins it into the ground. And then all of a sudden you have Hannah who is barren and she's going to have a child because you're going to find out in the story there is a righteousness to her that God goes, this is who I desire Israel to be. And she's going to have a child and that child is going to be another man and he's going to be a Nazarite and he's going to take the story in a better direction for the people of Israel. There is a larger story going on and God is doing this in a way to say, I am going to work. When, we, when you as people spin things into the ground, I'm going to help you spin it out of the ground and start taking it in a favorable direction because when you bring chaos and pain into the world, I'm going to work to bring redemption and wholeness in the midst of it. This is what God is doing in this story. Now, does Hannah know this is what's going on at the higher level? Probably not. In fact, the very next thing we read in the story, and this is, by the way, where the story gets really, really fascinating. And this is where I want to start leading into what I want to talk about with you in particular. Verse 9, it says this, Once they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed. Here's another way to translate that literally from the Hebrew. In her bitterness of soul. Hannah's angry. Is she angry at God? Maybe. Does she know what's going on? Not sure. Is she angry at Penina? Yeah, I would imagine she probably is. Is she angry with her situation? Oh, without question. And in her bitterness of soul, she is angry. And she's trying to figure, okay, what do I do in the midst of this? And it says this, in her deep anguish or in the bitterness of her soul, she prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. 
And she made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. By the way, this reference to no razor is in reference to the Nazarite vow, the restrictions that are in Numbers chapter six. This is one of the restrictions is that you don't cut your hair. And I love what Hannah's doing here because she says, God, if you give me a child, he'll be a Nazarite. And he will put on display what righteousness between you looks like for the people of this nation. We are in a dark place and I want my boy to be a representation of your righteousness in this world because we need good role models right now and I want my boy to be that. She's got a little feist to her. A little feisty. By the way, when she says Lord Almighty, it's the first time in the scriptures that God is ever addressed with this phrase and it means Lord of hosts, Lord of many, which I love this. She's like God of a whole lot of people, just give me one. Just give me one and I'll make sure he lives righteously before you and sets an example for our country on what righteous living looks like because we are in the midst of a dark period. And then this is where the story really gets fascinating. As she kept praying to the Lord, verse 12, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk. <laughs> if in doubt, play the drunk card. Right? He doesn't know what she's doing. Just say she's drunk. And he said to her, how long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. This is what I find so absolutely riveting about this story. Hannah is experiencing a lot in her life. She is unsettled. Her soul is disturbed. She has all of this going on inside of her. She feels shame. She feels pain. She feels anger. She's frustrated. She's anxious. She's disappointed. She's got all of this going on inside of her. And you know what? I bet you Eli knows it. I bet you he knows her story in some way. He knows that she's going through all of this. He knows that her soul is disturbed. And he thinks she's drinking. You see, a common response to pain, to frustration, to heartache, to anxiety is to take something in to neutralize what is happening inside of us. And this is what she gets accused of. She gets accused of taking something in to neutralize what is happening in her very soul. Because that's a common human response. I mean, think about your own story. Think about today, if you come in here with any form of anxiety or pain or anger or frustration, what do you do when your soul looks like this? You see, for many of us, when our soul looks like this, we take things in as well. Sometimes we take in 
sleep as a way to delude what's going on inside of us. And I'm not talking about like, okay, I just need to take a long nap because I'm exhausted or I feel like I'm just going through a lot. I'm talking about a habitual response for escaping the very thing that's going on on the inside. For some of us, it's sleep. For some of us, it's chocolate. We add a little bit of food into what we're going through. Uh, for some of us, it's, it's music. Like we just take in more and more noise because we need to delude what is going on on the inside. Um, for, for some of us, it's uh, distractions, uh, video games, uh, things like maybe Pokemon Go <laughs> for some of you. You know what that is, amazing. Man, all right, didn't know how well that one would land today. For some of us, we, we take in alcohol. We take in some other nubbing substance that just tries to delude it all. For some of us, ooh, yeah, this is a good one. For some of us, we go shopping, right? Because that new shirt, oh, that's gonna make us feel better. We take a trip to the mall. Oh, I'm just going for a walk. <laughs> yeah, right. For some of you, you just go, uh, I need to make myself busier. Because if I can go faster, then I don't have to slow down long enough to deal with this. Hannah's accused of taking something in to neutralize, to numb the disturbance of her soul. But you know what? Hannah's not doing that at all. Notice what her response is to Eli, who's accusing her of taking something in. Notice what she says. She says in verse 15, not so, my Lord, Hannah replied, I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli sees her. She's, whatever she's doing, whether it's like she's like trying to get this out, she's praying in an intense way, I don't know, but he's like, woman, you're drunk. You're taking something in to neutralize what you're feeling. And she goes, no, 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 no. Don't, don't, don't mistake this for a moment, Eli. I'm not taking anything in. She goes, I'm actually taking what's on the inside and I am pouring it out. I'm not taking something in to neutralize what's here. I'm taking what's on the inside and I'm pouring it out. And here's what's so cool about the word that she uses in this story. When she uses the word poor, she uses this word in Hebrew, it's the word shafak, and it means to pour out, yes, but it is a word that is used of a drink offering. A drink offering in the ancient world is you would generally take some sort of wine and you would pour it out as a sacrifice to the divine as a holy and sacred 
act. And Hannah says, I am pouring out a drink offering, all right. But I am pouring out my soul to the Lord. And I am doing it as a holy and sacred act to God. See, for Hannah, her soul is absolutely disturbed. And she could have responded a lot of different ways. Hannah could have taken something and poured it in as a way of neutralizing it. Hannah could have responded in a way of being mean and vindictive back to Penina, which you never see Hannah doing any of that. Hannah could have kicked the family dog or donkey or you know, whatever they have in the ancient world. She doesn't do it. Hannah recognizes that the best thing that she can possibly do is take what is on the inside and pour it out. Because Hannah understands something fundamental about what it means to be human. And she basically recognizes that when your soul disturbed, you gotta pour it out. When your soul's disturbed, you gotta do something with it because if it just sits here, if it remains here, it begins to do something to you. It has an adverse effect upon you. And when you go to respond, if you haven't poured it out, you respond in a way that can actually bring more chaos into the current situation than absolve the situation of the chaos and give something good and positive in the midst of the darkness. And the question becomes for us is, how can we do the same? How can we pour out whatever's going on? And by the way, it doesn't have to be anything massive and enormous. We all deal with different types of frustrations and anxieties. This morning I woke up thinking about Turkey. Um, For some of you, you're like, yeah, I've been following the events. I'm supposed to be there in four weeks. Taking a group and trying to figure out what to do, what's the best course of action, how long do we wait to say the trip is canceled, or, and I wake up this morning feeling anxious about that. Maybe for some of you, it's, 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 it's all, you just feel anxious about a meeting that you gotta have tomorrow, a conversation that you gotta have. Maybe it's something small, maybe it's something big, maybe something you've just been carrying around for a very long time, and you go, Brad, that's my soul. Whether it's got a little bit of dirt into it or it's got, you know, a ton of dirt and it's really heavy and it's really thick and, you know, it's, this is, this is me. What do we do? A couple months ago, I was having a conversation with a young man and he was in my office and we were just talking about life and he, he said, I just want to talk with you about some things. And the moment he walked through the door, he just had this really kind of downcastness to him, like just a, a really down persona. And he started to walk me through what was going on in his life. And it was issues at home, issues with family, issues in relationships. And he started to share all of this stuff with me. And you could just, you could just tell he, his soul was disturbed. And he just says, I don't know what to do. And uh, I, just, I just made a couple of comments. I said, well, um, it's clear to see that there's a lot going on on the inside. And I said, uh, what you need to try to figure out 
is, is how you can get what is on the inside out. Because if you, can, if you can drag it into the light, if you can name it, then you can start stripping of it of its power over you. And he says, well, but how do I do that? And I said, well, there's actually lots of different ways to do that. And I shared with him one of the ways that I pour out my soul to God is uh, I'll go for a run. And I'll go for a run or I'll go for a drive. And generally what I will do is whatever's in there, it's like I'll just start pouring it out to God. And if it's just, okay, I've got a meeting coming up that I've got some anxiety around or this person said this to me and it really, really hurt, um, I'll just kind of voice that to God. But when I go for a run or I go for a long drive, it's generally because I'm really disturbed. And sometimes I'm really disturbed at life. Sometimes I'm really disturbed with God. And sometimes it's just like my way of saying, okay, God, we got to have a heart to heart and I'm going to be doing a lot of the talking. And I go for a run and, and literally, maybe I've shared with this before, like sometimes I'm like throwing my arms in the air and I'm like, I'm just running. I'm like, what is going on with this? And, and, and I just, it's an expression for me. It's a way of saying, God, I, I'm taking this to you because I know you're big enough to handle my anger. You're big enough to handle my frustration. And I just have to get this out of me because it is messing with me on the inside. Or I drive down the road and, and, and I have my windows open and, and sometimes I'm just like speaking really, really loud. Some people may call that shouting. I don't know, but I'm just trying to get this out. And I said, so for me, it might be a run. For me, it's a drive. Sometimes it's me phoning somebody else and just venting to another person. Because I think that whenever you're trying to pour something out, there's this vertical dimension, us and God. There's a horizontal dimension, us and other people. And sometimes the best thing that you can do is pick up the phone and, and make a phone call. And I said, for some people, they, they journal it. They, 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 they sit down and it's a sacred and holy act of putting to paper what is on the inside, what's in your soul. And I said, and some people actually maybe just draw pictures of their pain. And he stopped me and goes, wait a minute, what? I was like, yeah, they, they, they like will draw as a way of getting it out. He goes, I can do that. He goes, I like to draw. He goes, no, no, I, I, I could totally do that. Like I, I could do this and, and, and I could do that. And all of a sudden his entire persona changed in that moment. And for the next 30 minutes, this young man who prior to that was one way was an entirely different person for the rest of the meeting because he found a way to pour out what was on the inside. And it was like I was talking to an entirely new person. In fact, after Hannah has said this to Eli, notice what, her what his response is to her in verse 17. Eli answered, go in peace and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. She said, may your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went her way and ate something and her face was no longer downcast. Now, was it no longer downcast because she knew she'd get pregnant? I don't think so. I think it's that she found a way to pour it out. What kind of creative way can you pour out what is on the inside? Maybe for you, like this young man that I had a conversation with, maybe some of you like to draw. And maybe it could look like putting together a piece of work a painting, a sculpture, a drawing, 
where you just try to wrestle with what's going on in the inside. Maybe for some of you, it's writing a song. Maybe for you, it's writing a letter. Maybe it's a journal entry. Maybe it's a run. Maybe it's a drive. Maybe it's uh, just a simple prayer. Because again, sometimes we take drastic measures with big things, but sometimes it's just sitting in our rooms and just saying, God, here's what's going on. Some, maybe for some of you, it's picking up the phone and making a phone call. If you've got anxiety, you've got to pour it out. If there's pain, pour it out. If there's frustration, pour it out. If there's anger, pour it out. And I know that for probably many of us, we walked in here today with a soul that's deeply disturbed. And maybe on some level, there's just a sense of disturbance that we all feel in some way uh, around just the reality of where our world is at. Our country has been through a lot in the last month. Our world has been through a lot in the last month. And uh, this doesn't mean that if, if, if we take what's on the inside and, and pour it out, that that's just the end of it. I mean, if the reason why you feel anger and frustration and pain is because somebody has done something to you and justice is needed, we don't absolve ourselves of justice. We don't just say, like, in a world right now, we'll just vent to God that we're upset with how things are, and then we just go on as if nothing happened. No, no, no. There's, there's always a justice component to the big things, and, and we're not saying that we need to absolve ourselves of that. There's a lot that needs to be done in our world, and, and maybe there's a lot that needs to be done in your own story. But that in the midst of chaos, we don't want to contribute to the chaos. And until we're able to learn how to pour things out, we have a hard time engaging situations where we can bring something positive in the midst of it, rather than operating out of anger frustration and pain. So here's what we want to do as a way of, of just allowing ourselves to sit in this. Is that we're going to take just a few minutes and uh, I'm just going to take a, a seat up here and, and you're doing a great job sitting where you're at. Well done. And uh, we're just going to give ourselves just a few moments just to sit. You know, sometimes you can, you can go through something like this and your own soul feels disturbed or some things get kicked up and we release you and it's about lunch and what's next and let's get to the beach and all of those things which are great things. But we just want to take a few moments. So we're, gonna, we're just going to show just a, a video from nature of water. Uh, I hope it doesn't make you have to go to the bathroom. The service is almost done. But uh, now I've probably just messed up all of you. But, uh, but here's what we're going to do is we're just going to sit for just a few minutes and uh, just sit in the midst of this uh, Allow ourselves just to really ask ourselves two questions. Um, what's, what's going on in our soul? What's got us disturbed? And, uh, and then just ask the question, how can we pour it out? Maybe for some of you, just write down, this is what I want to do with what I'm feeling. Uh, this is the prayer I need to pray. This is what I need to do. I need to go for a walk. I need to go for a run. I need to go for a paddle. I need to go for whatever you do that would really help you do that. Just take a few moments and then I will pray us uh, at the end of those moments and then we'll have a chance to, to close out our time together as a community. So uh, let's just sit. Let's just allow um, 
God to speak through us and just to slow down for a few moments and figure out what we need to do.
sacred and holy act of, of pouring out what was on the inside. And God, the reality is, is that for many of us, uh, it probably feels like a daily occurrence where our souls feel disturbed in some way, shape, or form. God, we pray that you would help us to pour out our souls to you as a sacred and holy act. That God, as we pour out our souls to friends, if we feel like that's the most appropriate, may we do so recognizing that we need to get what's on the inside out so that we can deal with whatever that thing is in a helpful and uh, a non-chaotic way. God, we thank you that in the midst of a world right now that feels very, very chaotic, we know that, that you are a God who is still on the throne. And God, I know that there are lots of people around the world who are questioning just what kind of authority you wield, whether you are actually still on the throne because of all the chaos that is ensuing. God, remind us of the fact that that Jesus, you stepped into the chaos, that you have conquered the chaos. And we long for the day where what is true in the moment on the cross and the resurrection would be true universally to all. In the meantime, God, we recognize that we are gonna continue to experience disturbances in our soul. We pray that you would just give us the courage to pour it out, to recognize that we need to take time and deal with that which is on the inside and find a way to get it out. So God, we pray that you would help us in that process. We pray that we would continually be renewed by every pouring process we go through and that you would continue to restore us, give us clarity and direction on what to do next. And we thank you, God, that your Holy Spirit goes with us in the midst of this process. So God, we love you and we bless you and we thank you for the opportunity to gather today. For it's in Christ's name we pray, amen, amen. Hey, why don't you stand and let's uh, close in a word of blessing, shall we? Uh, just a reminder, we always have people up front that would love to pray with you. I'll be up front if that would be helpful to have a conversation. Uh, there's also a prayer room off the lobby. You can go out and find a sign that shows you where that is if you're looking for a more intimate environment. And then also just a reminder, uh, to stop out at the area for the, the bracelets for the students in connection to those also, the people that are gonna be going overseas. So make sure that you do that as well. And I hope you have a tremendous Sunday. I hope that you have just a fabulous day with friends, with family, with whatever you get to do. And my friends and family, as you leave here today, um, may you leave here recognizing that life is going to afford us many times where our souls are disturbed. And the greatest thing we can do in the midst of our pain, our frustrations, and our anxieties is to pour it out. May you find a creative way to do that that is unique and helpful to you. Grace and peace be with all of you. We'll look forward to seeing you next Sunday, and Craig will be back. So uh, take care. Have a great week.